difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky could not be with us this week, and we're planning to embark on a decades-long search to figure out why. In our last episode, we discussed Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, a film finished years after Welles' death. In this episode, we'll be covering Shirkers, another film seen in the light of day after years of being lost. Sort of. Where The Other Side of the Wind is the story of a movie finished years after its director let it go, Shirkers is the story of a film its director could never really let go. Sandy Tan came of age as a rebellious kid in Singapore, the center of a group of film-crazy teens whose goals included shooting a movie that Tan would write, direct, and star in. And remarkably, they did shoot it, thanks to some equipment loaned from Kodak and with the assistance of a mentor named George Cardona, who would say little about his past beyond occasional references to serving as the inspiration for James Spader's character in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Maybe that should have been a red flag, but who sees red flags when your dream is coming true? And who could have foreseen Cardona walking off with the footage with no explanation? His disappearance haunted Tan and her friends until Tan unexpectedly received the footage back after Cardona's death, only without any accompanying sound. So she turned Shirkers, a never-to-be-finished narrative film, into Shirkers, a fascinating documentary that revisits the experience years later. It's part memoir, part making of story, part true crime tale, and we'll talk more about it after the break. When I was 18, the thing I wanted more than anything was to make a movie. I had the idea that you found freedom by building worlds inside your head. That you had to go backwards in order to go forwards. But I never imagined it would end this way. Whenever you're ready. Now. In the summer of 1992, my friends and I shot a road movie on the streets of Singapore called Shirkers. I was the screenwriter and played the heroine, a 16-year-old killer named S. Did you feel it was childish? Yeah, but that was the beauty of it, right? Our passion and our earnestness came through. Sophie was the producer. Jasmine was the editor. George was the director. Are you rolling? Yeah. I chose George as my new best friend. A man of unplaceable age and origin. After shooting Wrapped, he took everything. George was gone. And so was Shirkers. George had this perverse need to create mythology. Give us the material so we can finish the film. How could it have disappeared? What stakes did he have in this mind game? I like knowing that we're connected. That we're partners in crime. Shirkers became a secret history. It would haunt us and bond us. 
forever. All right, everyone. I found this film fascinating. What everyone else make of it? I think I found it less fascinating than fascinating. Okay. I it it grew on me over time. Like the mystery of Cardona, like what he wanted and how he operated. The mystery of Cardona builds over time, and like that aspect of it, just sort of the the psychological aspect of what it means to create something and have it disappear and have it all be in the hands of this mystery, and then have that mystery unraveled so far later. That and the contrast between watching the footage and watching the same people today, all of that eventually like really grew on me and became interesting. But I had a really hard time getting into it because it's just at the beginning, it feels like so many really self-indulgent biographical films, autobiographical films that I've seen. There was there was just so much detail about like aspects of her life in Singapore were interesting to me, but kind of the blow by blow of like, here was our zine and here was it was about and here's all of the people who loved it. And here's my book and here's what it was about. And here are all the people who loved it. And here's my film reviews and here what they were. Here's what they were about. And here's all the people who loved them. Like there was too much of that for me. I wanted to get to the strange and specific stuff uh and i just i felt like the beginning of it was just way too detail and diffuse for me hmm. okay yeah i'm i liked it a whole lot more i guess than you did i might maybe it was more in keith's camp and in fact i reviewed it for variety back in true false and it really is one of the best films i've reviewed for them because they always put me on terrible <laughs> they, put me, they, they traditionally put me on garbage um so i was i was pleased to review a film of this quality and it's just it's so multi-layered because it has this mysterious aspect of who George was and what he did, what his relationship was to Sandy and to her friends, what he did with the film, why he did what he did, who, what kind of person he was. All of that was is very interesting. But at the same time, it's so interesting to see what it was like to be a movie and culture crazy teenager in singapore mm-hmm. a place how that's even possible in a place that has no film industry really i mean there you get some stuff about what's the name of the i uh, forget what it was um, but yeah it's um um cleopatra wong right <laughs> yeah so so sort of like uh, that in any case you know you get a sense of what, what what it was like to live on the island and how people who did find this outlet were nurtured and kind of found stuff in the underground and sought out these mysterious cultural objects that were not available to them in any way, shape, or form. I just, I love that. It reminded me of me to some extent (laughs) in the sense that like if you were getting into music and film at this time before the internet, even in this land of plenty that is that we call the United States of America, you know, there was a time when you really did have to kind of like search search through old record stores and video stores and and go on little road trips and stuff to kind of find these coveted things. They weren't yeah. immediately available to you. So so I kind of connected with the film in that way too. It's a lot to process. I kind of get where you're coming from to some degree, Tasha, because it is, it's overwhelming and it's very busy and the rhythms of the thing are repetitive. It's not a smooth ride by any means, but I, I found it kind of exciting in the same, in a similar ways, I guess the other side of the wind, but I guess we'll discuss that uh, later. It's a little more coherent than the other side of the wind. I just feel like once Tan gets out of her own head and starts thinking about who he was and what he did, once she starts talking to her friends and getting their perspectives, once she starts bringing in outside people, the movie opens up so much for me. The story opens up and it becomes about this collaborative effort. Just at the beginning, it just feels very self-centered to me. I, I just find her head so interesting though. Like, I do too, yeah. Because she, because she just, especially because you have these images that accompany it, this, these images that are being produced by a, a young 
filmmaker who wants to make a road movie about in a island country that's only 40 <laughs> miles long that's an interesting impulse and who's very influenced by Godard you know breathless in particular and uh, and then all of these other inputs that into her life and to see them express through a sensibility that is its own special thing and is so so young I mean it's such a you know I, this is incredible like the footage that we're seeing considering the on the fly way in which it was made the footage that we see is pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, it really I, is. I, the The film seems very like a young director's film, but but also, I mean, the instincts are really strong there too. And I would love to have seen this finished movie. It's got a little David Gordon Green to it, like that mm-hmm. George Washington. That was one of the the many things that reminded me of it. It reminds me a little of Harmony Corinne. It reminds me a little bit, uh, like obviously there are uh, connections that she makes herself, like to Rushmore, for instance. There's a lot going on with these visuals, and it was pretty fascinating. But then in the like I, I want to see, I want to see shirkers. Like I want to see shirkers, and I want to see it twenty five years ago. Do you, re- do you really? You'd rather see? See, I, I kind of like. I'm kind of happy that this. I'm seeing this. I don't know if the film that she would have actually put together called shirkers would have been as compelling as is this thing that she's done which is i have no idea yeah, um it's even entirely based, even based on the evidence it just feels like a kind of a interesting first draft rather than something that was going to be this amazing coherent knockout of, of a debut feature no i mean what do you No, I, i'm with you there too i mean I'm, we don't have enough evidence to judge but like kind of like i was saying i felt like this was you know it almost feels like the what can i do any movie that that she would make before making a breakthrough film like one or two films down the line but it's it's interesting that she never followed through on that though she became she took up the noble profession of, of film critic for a few years and then yeah. and became a novelist. Well, she also, but. I mean, I think when she talks about writing a novel because she didn't need collaborators, mm-hmm. like that's just really telling, you know? She she had this experience that was, you know, exhausting and, and complicated and required Dis- other people. And yeah, and was deeply dis- disillusioning. You know, and it she had nothing to show for it. So she turned around and, and embraced an art form where she only had to rely on herself and at the end she was guaranteed to have something to show for it she wasn't guaranteed publication or a fandom or anything but she was guaranteed that the book wouldn't cease to exist the second she was done writing it (laughs) yeah it's a creative fear of abandonment (laughs) that sort of drove her um but there's again there's so many little like little aspects of the film that are kind of fun to pick apart and glom onto and and one of them is that relationship between her and her best friend which is complicated and then her in George, which is also interesting in the sense that, like, this guy is so shady. <laughs> I mean, for for one, it's like, just say that you are the inspiration for James Spader's character in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. <laughs> Let, let's, let's break that down on two levels, because it's like, w- one, just, just that being a fact seems absolutely absurd. Okay, just that being a fact. But let's just say that that's true do you really want to <laughs> to spend time <laughs> with with that character who, yeah. who who at least at certain points of his life uh, behaved in a very shady way but you can also see where it's like this is an older guy this is a guy who knows who is legitimately you know film literate and is showing them things that they've never seen before and this in a completely movie starved culture starved nation this is your ticket to bring your vision to life. That that relationship is so fascinating uh, to me. And um, he he leaves the film an enigma. I mean, we know more about who, how he lived, and maybe a little bit more about what motivated him. But I still, I think the guy's such a mystery. 
Really? I, I think no? he's I think they do a really useful job of articulating him. I think if he had just disappeared with their film, uh, it could have all been chalked up to, you know, some form of just like psychotic levels of procrastination or in- insecurity or mismanagement or incompetence. But the fact that he went out and did it again, mm. you know, the fact that he disappeared other bits of people's projects says to me that there was they they really do have him kind of pegged in terms of why he did what he did and it's a fascinating portrait that it, that they draw i just i want to back up briefly scott and, and say i like i love the fact that he he somehow seized on james spader's character <laughs> i wish other i wish other awful people would be helpful <laughs> enough to go around and and tell you like this is who I model myself on. Like I, <laughs> I consider myself to be the inspiration for an ineffectual creep that uh, exploits young women, but is actually afraid to like live his own life and who operates mostly in a really passive sphere while manipulating people. Like you, you say he's a mystery. I, I kind of feel like saying that he was James yeah. Spader is explaining everything about himself. You know who I, uh, you know who's based on me? Bill the Butcher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I confess, Kurtwood Smith and Robocop, Robocop. was my, uh, was my dad. Um, uh. So, uh, yeah, that is, uh, that is really something. Yeah. It is a jagged experience. It is not, you know, I think you could, there, there's a way in which she might have constructed this documentary to make it a cleaner portrait, but but in a way it's just sort of reflective of a sensibility that we already see at work in Shirkers. I mean, that collage style. I mean, you can see it, you can see it when she's showing you all of this, um, you know, journalistic work that they were doing, these zines that they were putting together, where it was just this very, very busy, overwhelming to the eye, you know, sort of patchwork of influences and impressions and things like that. And, and that style has kind of stayed, stayed with her. And, and it is very much the style of the documentary that we're seeing as well. So, uh, so I think that's just, she's, I don't know whether she's trying to just, you know, whether form is trying to imitate content here or whether that is just her sensibility and we're just seeing it 20 some years later in the oh. documentary. It's a strong debut. I'd like to see more film from her. I hope there's more, more stories to tell. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about the film after the break when we bring back the other side of the wind and make some connections. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. We can start with difficult productions. I mean, <laughs> the, the, I, it's hard to talk about the other side of the wind without talking about the story behind the story. Uh, the story of Shirkers is the story behind the story. Yeah. Um, with the other side of the wind, you kind of have to to appreciate it. You kind of have to know how it came to be. And Shirkers is sort of like all that compressed into into one film as well. It is interesting to see how these things are put together and you can think about how easily any film can fall apart. But I think some films are more uh, likely to fall apart than, than others. I mean, these are both filmmakers working without uh, a safety net in any way. Yeah, exactly. And the, and, and the financing is always uncertain and there's not really, there's something incomplete about the plan to make the movie and to finish it. And they're and and, and, and they both take on structures that are really uh, to where as artists they're kind of finding the movie as they go along i mean they don't really have this you know roadmap i guess or uh you don't want a roadmap with a road movie really you want to be (laughs) you really you really want to feel as spontaneous as possible and i think both 
Shirkers, the film within the film, and The Other Side of the Wind, the film, are both trying to kind of just find their way. And they don't. They never, they didn't find their way. (laughs) You know, and so, and so we have to, so there had to be this process of trying to construct it again because there was no, because they they didn't make it. (laughs) They died on the, on their way to the finish line. What kept coming up for me, what just kept coming to mind is um, there's this Rudyard Kipling poem that is, contains what may be my favorite line of poetry of all time. The poem's called The Palace, and it's about a king who wants to build himself a palace. And as he's digging the foundations, he finds all of these ruins of a previous palace. And carved into them is the phrase, after me cometh a builder, tell him I too have known. And he's like, whatever, and he goes on to build his palace. But then he realizes somebody tried to do what he's doing right now, and it all fell apart. And then the line is, as if he had risen and pleaded... So did I understand the form of the dream he had followed in the face of the thing he had planned. And that line just kept going through my head over and over watching these films. Because both of them, you can see like the face of the thing they had planned. And eventually they had to come up with a completely different way to construct that dream. I mean, I think it, it becomes very different because one of these versions is constructed by the person who had the dream in the first place and one isn't. But I, I just I'm so fascinated with both of them as artifacts of some specific dream that fell apart and was constructed into something new. Also, in their own way, they both have movies within movies. And The Other Side of the Wind has the film that's being made and discussed. And Shirkers has the original version of Shirkers. And they both kind of interrupt the narrative that the the proper film around them is attempting to convey. It's interesting to see how those structures kind of mirror each other in some ways. Yeah. In The Other Side of the Wind, you're perpetually looking at the contrast between these extremely young and beautiful people who spend most of the film with their bodies bared and this really, I'm sorry, but it's true, hideous looking old man. Like, his God, his teeth. And the film spends so much time like up in his wrinkles and his crags and his complexion and his teeth. And you're seeing the contrast between like the beauteous thing that he creates and the beauty that he covets and like who he is. And at the same and they're spending all their time naked and he's spending all his time hiding from these people who are trying to get him like metaphorically naked so there's this huge contrast there but at the same time you're seeing him like creating a thing that he covets and that he wants with shirkers what fascinated me was perpetually going back and forth between like here i am very young and here i am now and the physical differences there you get a little of the same thing except that she's not creating something that she covets like that's just her that's just like a past uh, like a part of her past that she's recreating and reconnecting with but at the same time i feel like she constructs shirkers like a lot of that footage ends up being used not so much to illustrate here's the project we tried to make is to illustrate here's how I used to be and we cut to her her face from back then in that footage so often as she's telling the story of who she was and how the story happened and it's like I in so many of those moments I don't think we're seeing here's what I wanted to do we're just seeing here's me Here's me having this dream. Here's me thinking about this film. Here's me with this man. Here's me with my friends. And it feels like a, a scrapbook. Yeah. In a way that's just fascinating. No, I mean, in all that, yeah, it's just footage that is being repurposed. I mean, it's repurposed as part of the documentary. It's something to look at. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's something that documentaries have so much trouble with that this film has no trouble with at all, Shirkers, because, you know, documentaries, you know, what are you going to look at? What, 
uh, archival <laughs> footage and talking heads. I mean, it can be pretty dull. But here, you have all this, you know, actual material of this film that she made, and she's the star of the film with uh, Shirkers, and so so she can have a documentation of what she looked like when she was that age and what kind of uh, adventure she was getting in on screen. And so you can kind of just throw that in into the broader narrative of the film, whereas the film within a film within the other side of the wind is is a separate thing, is removed, and, it is, is, and it's also... It's not like an honest Wells film or something like that. It's not like a it's not a film within a film in the sense the sense that Orson Welles himself is making is showing you this movie that he might have been proud of at some point. It's a film that is that he's offering up as as I said in the earlier show, kind of a parody of European art cinema of Antonioni of and then also of uh, you know some of the new new Hollywood stuff that was coming out. I mean there was there's like it's a much different experience these two movies within a movie. Another thing that these films have in common is this notion of gatekeepers, right? Of like, what is preventing them from real, realizing their vision, which they both have. I mean, Wells was pushing himself to make this film by hook or by crook, and so, as as was Sandy Tan when she was a kid, and, and they have to go through these gatekeepers that are pretty dubious, right? I mean, you've got she has to go through George Cardona, uh, who's a, who's a very shady character, and then. I mean, the financing on the other side of the wind is just goes to comical places when when you're dealing with you know the movie being tied in somehow to the Iranian Revolution. I mean, that is n- very unconventional financing and very mm-hmm. uncertain financing when you're filming a movie over s- the course of six years. Um, so so it's kind of interesting to me, like the struggles that they have as independent filmmakers to try to get their vision across. That it, that it in itself is difficult and uncertain with the additional uncertainty of funding. And that, that a 19-year-old and uh, making her first film in Singapore and, and, and a 55-year-old established master would kind of run into the same problems is, is fascinating as well. At the same time, like I, I, it actually seems like she had a much easier time of it. One of the things that throws me a little bit about Shirkers is the degree to which the country seemed to embrace her project. I mean, they ran out of money and then she had to empty her bank account in order to get it made but she did actually have that money kodak helped them out with uh with equipment like afterwards there seems to have been like publicity interest in her for years over this film that didn't even happen i I had a little trouble sort of parsing that part of the story where she's having to turn down people who want to interview her about the film when there's no evidence of that film whatsoever whereas you know wells is struggling for for attention and fun like as an established master who has a long history of producing projects that drag on for years and and he ends up with nothing to show for it that ends up being sort of an interesting contrast between the two of them yeah i kind of do wish that the interest as you say the outside interest in sandy tan in this movie i wish that had come through a little bit clearer in the film that part of it seems a little murky in retrospect but maybe not to you, I guess. Or no, no, it seemed very murky. I, I was, I was perpetually asking, like, why, why is this child who creates chaotic zines and <laughs> like film stuff in her spare time, like, why, why, why does the press keep chasing her? Well, I mean, but, but I mean, who, who else? Are they, who else are they going to chase? She's a unicorn. There's no, <laughs> there's no scene. There's no film scene there to really talk about. I mean, so, so if she happened to make the next Breathless, or if she was Singapore's answer, answer to Godard. Um, that would be some pretty huge news, and and you know there's evidence that maybe she had that potential. But I mean, but there is no evidence because all of the footage the disappeared. Well, <laughs> there's promise though, I guess there's there's some promise. I just don't know what that that perception of promise is based on. 
I think she's kind of Schrodinger's auteur at this point. You know, <laughs> she's the only one, and she may or may not be a genius. But you know, that's the the one there is to talk about. I just, I, I, I just wonder how the press found out about it. I guess. You I know? mean, when you say the press, I don't think it's necessarily every newspaper pounding down her door. I no, mean, I but like she portrayed a, it a little bit like that. Yeah, but I feel like it's just it's just people who care about movies in Singapore are who are passionate about it would probably be pretty passionate about talking to someone. She's a scenester. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, she, she, I mean, you know, she, she was involved in you know writing and publishing and media. I think she probably had, a, had some connections that would, uh, would draw a little bit of interest. Both of these films also just sort of, I think, take an interesting look at our tour theory. You know, there's this question throughout other side of the wind of, you know, people asking what exactly Hannaford's intent is. And, until that brutal, brutal takedown at the end, there's just sort of this open question of like, what is he getting at? Like there's some personal thing here and clearly he has complete control of what he's putting on the screen. And as you see in that immensely awkward uh, sequence I talked about earlier, like he, he literally controls the bodies and the reactions of his actors in the moment, like moment by moment as they're acting, he's telling them as if he's shooting a silent film, he's telling them what to do with their bodies. So like, it feels like he's meant to be a very auteurist director, but then there's just the open ongoing question of is what he's producing good? Not just, is it commercial, but is it going to come together into something that makes any kind of sense whatsoever? And then in Shirkers, you have George as kind of this like, interfering or tourist somebody who's coming in and like claiming not just the movie for himself but like claiming all of the work of all of these young women like claiming uh control over them claiming that this is like his project to do with as he pleases Mm -hmm. and he becomes this just kind of you know the dark image of the auteur who is so much in control he can pick up the film and throw away aspects of it that he, are not important to him. You know, he just, he threw away the sound because it wasn't important to him. Yeah, and maybe there's something too in terms of the connection between that relationship between him and Sandy Tan and then the relationship between Hannaford and, and Brooksy uh, in terms of like that, the mentor and the prodigy and, and uh, the professional jealousy and ownership that kind of poisons that relationship as it seems very present in Sharkers as well. It also seems very A Star is Born. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Or, or Boogie Nights or Showgirls. Are, or... Are, are all our parents about A Star is Born now? Is that the way it's going to be? I mean, it is a big iconic story, so it is possible that just all movies are A Star is Born are, and we just hadn't realized it. Are we a stealth uh, Star is Born podcast now? <laughs> Well, I tell you, when we get around to uh, next week's pairing, which is the 1937 A Star is Born and the 1977, 78, 76, 1976 Star is Born, we can discuss that again. Okay. Well, join us next week. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. That'll wrap things up for uh, this pairing, although we'll hopefully get some nice feedback on it because I... I, I both these movies uh, are sticking with me. Uh, this week, it's easy to tell you where to watch them too. They're both on uh, both on Netflix. Just a click away if you have that service. Uh, Other side of the wind is playing some theaters briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, I, it was here at Music Box for like a showing. They yeah, had a special screening. I, I saw it projected. It was worth it. I, I I think it's a film that would benefits from the concentration required yeah. to watch in the theater. Well, and that's the, that's the other thing too. And then you see, I'm gonna buck against Netflix because because uh, I don't want. I feel like this ends up being like since we're doing two films that are available on Netflix, it's like what are we working for Netflix now? So let me. <laughs> one thing I'll kind of push against with them is like, what is is the other side of the wind now? 
the property of of Netflix? I mean, do you know, are you going to have to to have a subscription to see this film? Is it not going to exist in any other way? Pretty much. Although that, 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 that to me is like the the, the ultimate knock against Netflix as a company is just that they're not being a, a chance for you to own or experience work outside of paying a fee and, and streaming it for as long as you can and it just it's but i mean that's true of any film right now like any any film that you can point to no, is not. owned by the studio that made it yeah, like, but, but yeah but, but you can but they but repertory theaters can get it or you can buy it you can buy a physical copy and have it for forever and they can't come to your house and take it away um that's not it's a much different story when you're when it's streaming and like the moment you you decide that you're not going to have netflix anymore you have no access to these films in any way whatsoever and no. just as i just being the person i am i'm, I'm gonna i have a shelf full of coen brothers blu-rays i'm never gonna be able to put ballad of buster scruggs next to it apparently uh <sighs> yeah you know i think you need to get used to that as being the new normal as we move towards every studio having its own streaming service that's the dedicated place they want all their content i question how much longer physical media is going to be around uh, and i certainly do think it's going to be kind of a case of well if you want to see a disney movie you gotta join the disney uh, yeah, or like service. you want to have to go to like go to crackle to see a pt anderson movie now or something <laughs> it's just no just 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 make it just don't be so you know like dismissive of physical media that you or, or the the outside world that you don't make things available outside of your stupid service is all I'm saying. <laughs> so there you go. That I mean, there's my there's me the stupid pushing, service that, pushing back on the stupid service that we, has these two very interesting Yeah, to push back on the pushback that the two films you probably would not have a chance to see uh, otherwise. Oh, oh man. Uh, They've gotten to you, Keith. They've gotten to you, Netflix. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, on that note, well, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, when the film world has been good for you lately? Oh, I wanted to return to... I was I, The last show, I was on the verge of recommending this before deciding to recommend the sequel to Mamma Mia. Uh, so I thought like I, I needed to make some penance here and, and recommend the new... Frederick Wiseman doc Monrovia Indiana which we which uh, is surfacing in my mind again because uh, we are sitting here in my home studio Sweet Emotion Studios uh, you know the day after the midterm elections and the day all kinds of cra- I, I'm sure by the time this podcast drops we'll just <laughs> we'll be officially a banana republic but like it had me thinking about rural America again you think about the, the divide between um, our experiences here in, in a city like Chicago, and then the experiences of people in a place like Monrovia, Indiana, which is a rural community in this, in you know, sort of I guess West Central Indiana uh, that voted heavily Republican. I mean, and they and they certainly played a hand in bouncing Joe Donnelly from who was the Democrat from Indiana. He was he lost by a significant margin, um, so they played helped play a role in that. And yet, Monrovia, Indiana, has almost no political content in it whatsoever. At least overt political content. I mean, there's there are there are meetings in which you hear uh, there's a meeting in which somebody actually uses the word collusion when they meant collaboration and, and they all get kind of a little bit of a laugh from that 
there are issues with, that they're talking about in city council meetings. We're talking about like a community that's having in, insufficient service from the fire department and from fire hydrants and talking about those regulations and and talking about expansion and growth in the area and it's all very very local but really the film what really got to be watching Monrovia Indiana is just the the feel of it of Wiseman's sense of how of what the tenor of life is like in this particular town um, you know he once again in his usual style just films different places does it a very fly on the wall style um things that seem would seem quite mundane are somehow become exciting or compelling in their in their way the way he films them and and ultimately though i think the movie is about death i mean this is an 88 year old making making a movie about a town that is in its way dying i mean it's it's dying a very slow death as so many middle american towns have um it doesn't you know i mean there's even a resistance within the community of of expanding of 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 growing the place so so really so there's that stopping it as well um um you know a lot of the people that we meet and see are are you know middle-aged or older it's not a not a town you would associate with with the the young in the vital and then it ends uh i won't give away the ending but uh but i think it reinforces a theme to where if if frederick wiseman would ever stop and he he he, he's not the type of director who stops. He keeps. He does keep working. This would be just like the perfect film to kind of land your career on because it just the ending is so devastating and beautiful. Um, Monrovia, Indiana, is the name of the movie. Uh, it's finding its way around the country quite slowly. Um, if it's already passed you by, it will eventually surface on Canopy, which is now the home for everything that Wiseman has directed. So if you're a city, if you live in a place at a library system that's fortunate enough to have Canopy, then you can just see all of his films. And so you can compare it with something like Belfast, Maine, which is like a four hour film. I really like that is also about kind of a working class town, but takes it takes another angle i think than this one this is much more death haunted to me it's also a great film to see if you want to watch extended footage of a dog having its tail docked which is uh, boy that's rough stuff why yeah. why would you want to watch and don't, that and don't do it don't don't dock your dog's tail there's no need to do it well you keep from stepping on it i guess mm, that wasn't why it was being done yeah. um mm. that's a whole nother another podcast yeah. no great movie can though. we go back uh, to suicide movies yeah I know. yeah so what about you keith what do you got I'm going to recommend a movie I've been kind of puzzling over since I saw it, which is Luca Guadagnino's um, remake of Suspiria and uh, Dario Argento's um, 1977 uh, horror, you know, out there horror classic, which we talked about in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's a puzzling film. You kind of whatever you're expecting from a remake of Suspiria, this is this is not that. And 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 in my mind, I find it interesting for the same reason I find. Uh, Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween, interesting, where, where, you know, John Carpenter just gives you the barest possible outline of Michael Myers and the whole thing. It's all in service of these, you know, amazing suspense things and like the zombie just kind of let's let's delve into the, the psyche of this character. And and in and, and the original Suspiria, I, I feel like maybe Dario Argento and, and his co writer uh Dario uh, Nicolodi, you know, I was like, okay, let's do let's let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do a horror movie dance studio germany that's enough let's go you know and and, and this I, I you know guadagnino just just like okay 
Germany in the 1970s. Now, what was going on? We, we've got <laughs> we've got left radical left wing terrorists. We've got the shadow of, of the Holocaust. We've got the Berlin Wall. Uh, dancing. What does that mean? Witchcraft. What does that mean? And and it is um, it's two and a half hours long. The horror sequences are spread out uh, you know uh, there's there's generous material between the anything you would <laughs> that would be a horror yes. movie sequence that's but, a word for it but um i don't know i found, I found it it's just the style of it I, I found um entrancing i i like dakota johnson in the lead tilda swinnon um is also fantastic and uh um, she only plays one character in it though the the other there, there's, <laughs> a, there's a there's a there's an amazing uh, older German actor named Lutz Ebersdorf, who plays the, an elderly man. I've never seen him in a film before. Amazing. Amazing. These hypnotic eyes, though, look a lot like uh, somebody else's eyes. But uh, <laughs> Boy, um, you got to lie. I don't know. It, it's it's a movie that I'm going to be, uh, it's going to stick with me for a while. Um, and it's like, I left it like, did, did I like that? And now I think I think I like it a lot. So I, I would definitely recommend, I'm kind of sorry we're not talking it over on the show. I know, I think, I think, the opinion runs all you know all different point all different points on, on at, the, at, this, at this table here, but uh, it's definitely worth your time, I believe. You know, she plays a, a third role mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. film as well. Yep, I didn't want to spoil it for anyone though. No, I mean I'm not going to go into any detail. Just wanted to make sure you knew she plays the part of Dakota Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> it's what a transformation! Unbelievable makeup. Uh, okay, so yeah, I mean I, I struggled with um, the new Suspiria, but had a lot of respect for it. I mean, this is not. I was, of course, looking so much forward to both the the David Gordon Green version of Halloween and 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 then what Luca Guadagnino would do with. Suspiria, and I had I did come away with a lot of respect for Guadagnino's idea of just totally going a different direction. Whether mm-hmm. just like I'm just, all those colors that you were excited about the first film, and the uh, you were I'm just going to take all that stuff away. You know, it almost felt to me like he was taking, you know, the built-in bathroom break that Argento had put in the original Suspiria where they go to the college and then and get you get uh Udo Kier and someone else explaining all this mythology to you straight in a straightforward way for like 10 or 15 minutes like I almost felt like they made the movie about that I mean <laughs> sort of I mean I, I know what you mean but it's never really explained to you you're sort of required to piece it together a little from little bits of information throughout in the which film. one in, in in the new one in the new one yeah. you know I mean I but I but I kind of as much as I found it kind of gross and tedious when I first saw it, the the, the new one I did, I have it has kind of not left my head and in a way that makes mm-hmm. me think like God, if I return to it, is it going to maybe come to life a little bit more? Because I felt so much of it, I felt so confused and disoriented and a little bit bored by it um, when I saw it at first, and I and I kind of distrust my own reaction to it. But um, maybe I was right. I'll I'll uh, have to find out. Tasha, how about you? What, have you seen anything good lately? You know, no, no, I, I have not. Uh, I saw something really good at the beginning of the year. Um, the movie that I wanted to recommend this time uh, is something I actually saw at South by Southwest uh, very early in the year, but it's really stuck with me. Uh, it's called Prospect, and it's in theaters as we're recording this. Um, it's a tiny, tiny indie, so I don't know how long it's going to be in those theaters, uh, but I also suspect it's going to be the kind of thing with a, a kind of a bit of a rolling rollout. You can find theaters that are showing it at prospectthefilm.com. Apparently, they've got some kind of exclusive deal with Regal Cinemas, so it may depend on whether you've got a Regal in your area, and it may depend on uh, just how long it remains 
remains in theaters. But uh, it'll vi- eventually be on VOD. They've got, uh, I couldn't find a scheduled date, but apparently um, early 2019, it'll be available for, for digital viewing. And I just feel like this is something that people who like films that I like um, might want to bookmark for later. So Prospect is a, a tiny independent science fiction film about a father played by uh, Jay Duplass, uh, the filmmaker, and a teenage girl, his daughter, uh, played by Sophie Thatcher, who land on a small moon with a toxic atmosphere and start mining for some fairly Uh, obscure esoteric substance. And the film mostly teaches you these things by playing it out. It's just one of the more interesting world building experiences I've had with like a little science fiction film. It's taken a lot of um, comparisons to Moon, and it's not mind bending at all in the same way that Moon is. But it does have that kind of like slow, stately unfolding, and the same kind of discovering of science fiction, a heady science fiction world by being in it. It kind of unfolds over time as she gets herself into some trouble and has to kind of work through what that experience is like. But uh, it's just, it's a very junky science fiction world. It, it looks like original Star Wars. Everything is used and and beat up um, and looks like, you know, things that people have actually used. It's not a slick science fiction world at all. It's very lived in. The production design on this film for the the cost that went into it, the production design is amazing. The mm. costume design is amazing. The sense of real, a real world and real people in it are amazing. And yet every moment of it is a discovery because you're literally on an alien world. And I can't say too much about what happens and what the film is really about because I don't want to give it away for people. I mostly just want to put it on the radar of people who like movies like Moon, um, who like like small independent science fiction, who like innovative and interesting forms of storytelling. Prospect the movie. It's like nothing else I've really seen this year. And that alone excites me a fair bit. But it's just really well acted, really well assembled and a real experience. Did you see The Endless I did. Okay. I did, in fact. And I. For some uh, reason, you think I was thinking about like kind of like scrappy, smart science fiction and that that independent on an independent level. And I mean, obviously, it's not you know on another planet per se, but it does have a lot of weird, (laughs) weird stuff going on. Oh yeah. Um. And I might have actually recommended the previous film that those two, the two of those guys did. Yeah. Uh, Resolution. Well, well, that was between. No, then they did the one. The they did the one between those two. Spring. Spring, yeah. Spring, yeah. Spring was between them. But uh, The Endless is is specifically a uh, sequel to a movie that I liked a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think we're reviewed for the dissolve. Yeah, it's in it's in the resolution verse. Yes, I think that seeing resolution first is really important to understanding where the endless is coming from okay. and what it what it's doing. Also, I think seeing resolution first builds up a certain sense of anticipation about what's going on and makes it maybe a little less opaque. But you can see them independently. But Prospect, you can see. <laughs> Prospect, you can see. On I don't want to hijack that. Uh, it sounds like a really good movie. It's it's really fun. It's really f- fun. It's it's definitely a, a dark drama, but it's really interesting. But The Endless, also a very interesting movie. Sure. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out November 27th and December 4th. Scott, what's coming up next? Well, the next picture show broadcasts you from Chicago, but it's rare that we get the opportunity to talk about our native city on the show. 
So we're happy to bring you two heist films that unfold on our turf. In fact, the new Steve McQueen thriller Widows has a few scenes that take place in Fireside Bowl, the humble bowling alley slash punk club that used to host our media league back when we were at the Dissolve. It also features many other familiar neighborhoods and gives you a taste of the Chicago way as it applies to the mini fiefdoms of our alderman system. For our next pairing, we'll compare Widows to Thief, another Chicago-based heist thriller that represents the auspicious debut of Michael Mann, a native son who also knows the city inside and out. We're excited to give you an audio tour of Chicago, then and now, and perhaps puzzle out why it's so robbable. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Other Side of the Wind, Shirkers, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at NPR, New York Times, Washington Post, um, Variety, uh, and other fine publications. Vulture, done a lot of Vulture stuff lately, so you can find me there. Uh, what about you, Tasha Robinson? Uh, you can find me at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? Oh, you can find me at KFIPS3000 on Twitter. I collect my I'm a freelance writer. I collect my clips at KeithFIPS.com, which I need to update. Uh, you can find my writing at such places as Vulture, uh, The Verge, or Rolling Stone sometimes. Uh, I'm all over the place. You the can, Ringer? You can specifically the Ringer. Uh, yes, that's another, another good find one. Find uh, an interesting and in-depth uh, review of Other Side of the Wind over at The Verge. At The Verge, yeah. Um, and as for the, the show itself, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Scott Tobias for providing recording space in his home base, Sweet Emulsion Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Wait and 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 wait and